It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Today, we're tackling the new Supreme Court nominee, NATO, and I have some things to say to white people with cell phones. Also, I'm sharing my interview with Emily Jane Fox of Vanity Fair about her new book, Born Trump. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. First, we both wanted to say thank you so much for all the kind feedback about the first part of our series on 9-11. It was very difficult to research and to record. And as soon as we were done, I think both of us were like, oh, that was okay. I don't want to re-traumatize people. I don't want to get anything wrong. So we just all the feedback of it was hard to listen to, but I feel like you guys handled it well was very, very, very much appreciated. We also continue getting emails that say things like, I don't know if you thought about this aspect of 9-11, but I hope that you'll talk about it. And we're keeping all of that. And it is a lot. And I'm so happy. It's going to be a lot of parts. It's going to be a lot of parts. Though that means our first conversation was successful because that's really the point here. 
that this national trauma has far-reaching tentacles Mm -hmm. and that we're already seeing everyone processing that and surfacing those tentacles, I think means that our first episode really did what we wanted it to do. And so this is going to go on for a while. Bear with us. We keep shifting the calendar out to devote more time to it because we do want to hit all those aspects. And we just appreciate you being involved in this conversation and sending us resources and, and thinking through it with us. And we're really excited because we've decided to take a trip to the 9-11 memorial and hopefully record some audio from the memorial itself closer to the actual 9-11 anniversary. And I'm, I mean, excited is not probably the right word to visit the 9-11 memorial, but I think it's important that we both go there and that we um, include that in part of the series. And so look forward to that. Next week, we'll be back with part two. We're going to start talking about what led up to 9-11. We just did an interview with Pansy Politics resident expert, Carrie Anderson, about the Middle East. And so we're going to talk about that. And then we will be taking a break in the series while Beth and I go on individual vacations and then picking it back up in August. We have a new Supreme Court nominee. Hmm. I did Another white night- guy. What, one, 108 out of 113? Is that the right statistic? I, I did right. a nightly nuance on this, so I've kind of said what I have to say about it, and I'll summarize that briefly, but I'm really curious about your reaction, Sarah. I mean, my overall thought is that when I think about what bothers me about Brett Kavanaugh, very little of it is related to Brett Kavanaugh as an individual. It is more just my overall sadness about where the court is as a part of our politics, my overall sadness about how positions like this work and how people are groomed for practically the entirety of their lives. I mean, it seems like Brett Kavanaugh might have known in kindergarten that he wanted to be on the Supreme Court They both went to Georgetown Prep, both him and Gorsuch. It's ridiculous. They both went to the same freaking elementary school. (laughs) And I'm not I'm not mad at him personally about that, but I am kind of mad about it on a big picture level. And his His jurisprudence has been so carefully crafted. I mean, you can just see where this has been going, and that that bothers me. But it's not individually directed. It's just, on the whole, that bothers me. What I'm bothered is that I have these warring, like, angel devils on my shoulder with regards to Kavanaugh. And honestly, sort of like it's becoming about the Bush administration generally, because I have this one voice that's like, oh, thank God, he's he at least he picked like the establishment, not the person Gene Pirro or Sean Hannity wanted to pick. So yay to that. At least he's sort of knows what he's doing, isn't looking to be, become BFF with Russia or upset the entire Western alliance. So that's positive. At least he's, he doesn't represent that camp. But then this other part of me is like, you know what? I know that George Bush is likable, particularly in the Trump era. And, you know, there's a part of me, like I said, that gets that appeal. But then there's a part of me who's like real deep in 9-11 research right now. And the Bush administration, I don't want to be hyperbolic. They did everything wrong. Like Literally, every opinion, every foreign policy approach, every social policy, like I just, and to, to know that it's this, representation of an administration who I feel was just so detrimental to America is now like I have to p- depend on them to be the good guys as com- as opposed to represent like the Stephen Millers of the world. It's just an incredibly disheartening and frustrating position to be in. And that's kind of where I'm at with him because he is so representative and has spent so much of his career like in the Bush administration working on the- that sort of representation. It's just I feel frustrated. Here's what they didn't do wrong that's very relevant, though. 
and this is far afield of Brett Kavanaugh, but they emphasized constantly that terrorism is not representative of every person who follows the tradition of Islam. Mm. They cared about immigration and have been vocal about the separation of families at the border recently, right? The Mm -hmm. team Bush has been out in full force against many of the most egregious Trump administration policies. I know. It's why they're they're warring voices in my head. Yeah. I don't want to get into a whole thing about the Bush legacy because it's complicated and there is a lot of room for criticism and we will do that as we pursue the 9-11 series. But I also want to emphasize that most observers have seen what might be his best asset, which is the experience in the Bush administration, as his biggest liability to this president, you know, because this president does not view the Bush administration as being aligned with where he is. I'm not excited about Brett Kavanaugh, obviously. I think he's probably going to get through because I feel like sometimes we live in a minority rule democracy, especially with regards to the representation on the court itself, just demographically wise. But I try, like you said, I don't know where to go from there. I'm trying not to get too bogged down in that feeling. It's just so interesting that, you know, on one end of the spectrum, Donald Trump is this extreme rejection of people who have been groomed for government for their entire lives. And I would argue that Brett Kavanaugh is the other extreme. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's unbelievable to me, the trajectory of his career and the, the deliberateness of, of his career. Someone, when I was live tweeting the announcement, someone responded that Ashley, his wife, did not look happy. And I thought, can you imagine if you're Ashley and you've been the personal secretary to George W. Bush during 9-11? So, you know what the White House is, right? And you know what these jobs mean. And you and your husband have been working for your your entire adult lives to get him to this point. What it must feel like that he was appointed by Donald Trump. Yeah, I can imagine that that was a, a horribly conflicting moment for the two of them. I have no idea what he'll do on the court because every opinion he's written in his life has been like, well, here's what the precedent is and we're a lower court and we're bound to apply it. And he wrote a book with Neil Gorsuch about what precedent means, but it's difficult to tell which one of them is authoring which parts from what I have read so far. I just don't know. I was really upset by the um, opinion, the recent opinion that Justice Alito uh, wrote overturning precedent on public unions. I I said on the Nightly Nuance, I agree with every word of the opinion um, up to the decision to overrule 40 years of precedent on this issue. I just don't think that makes any sense. And I can't imagine that Kavanaugh and Roberts and Alito are going to want to have this legacy of just constantly doing that. Um, so I, I may be not as freaked out by the possibilities here as some observers are, but I could be totally wrong. But Gorsuch joined that opinion, Yeah. He did. He did. After writing a book on precedent. He did. Mm-hmm. I think that that, to me, like, I don't believe them. I'm just going to be honest. I don't believe them. They're smart enough. They get in there and they make the law work for what they think is the right decision. You don't You don't read either side and go away being like, oh, they're just big babies and they just want, they want to make the law. No, they all, they can all make pretty good cases, but they make it work 
no matter even the you know original constructionist and all that it's all window dressing for an ideology and how they want to use the decisions of the court to support it we are a hundred percent away from a, a judicial conservatism it is now judicial activism from the left yep. and the right and yep. and we should be honest about that and and that's what I find so heartbreaking about the whole thing but but we we don't have I don't I don't think a lot of judicial conservatism happening. And in one respect, you could argue that that's what Brett Kavanaugh's lower court career has represented because he has been um, pretty faithful to Supreme Court precedent and and carefully so, but always noting it, you know, along the way. So I, I just don't know. I don't know what he'll do. We also wanted to touch quickly on the President Trump's NATO visit. I would really just this is related. Go with me here. If you are a major media outlet and you are using the word Twitter rant, just stop. Please, please, please stop reporting on that. I am begging you. I understand that the president's Twitter feed, he is the president of the United States. It's important. I understand that. But maybe instead of giving the Twitter rants the entire story, you could write a story on the reality on the ground and save to the very end of the article. This is with the president's reaction on Twitter, because we don't do that for presidential press releases. When they put out statements, they don't cover those almost all on their own, or like they certainly didn't under the Obama administration or the Bush administration. They were treated way down in the stories. This was the White House's statement on this. So why can't we just treat the tweets like that? Just treat them like White House statements, stick them at the end. Like I'm so frustrated with the continuing way the press covers his tweets as if we all haven't learned anything from it. Like if anybody is really concerned, they don't, first of all, they don't need the press covering. They can go on Twitter and read them themselves. And like, I just, I'm really frustrated. Like, cause I feel like what was happening at NATO and the coverage of his tweets about NATO were very different. And I'm frustrated by that. I don't know what the right way to cover that is because diplomacy is so personal. And so I can understand on the one hand that the tweets are the most insight we have into the president as a person. And the tweets have been quite relevant to some of what's occurred. You know, someone writing about the G7 summit uh, would have given a very incomplete picture of that summit had they not included his Twitter um, commentary on it. Commentary seems like a generous word, but... um, I'm not saying don't include it. I'm saying don't make it the story. Yeah. The takeaway that I've come away with um, from all the coverage is that we're just... America's just wearing everybody out. Like the drama Mm -hmm. of all of it is just exhausting to the entire world. I don't blame them. I'm worn out by it all, too. I think Americans themselves are worn out. Yeah. Which is a really unfortunate thing, given the importance of NATO at this moment in our history. Yeah. Yeah. Particular because of Russia's increasing aggressive behavior. And, you know, I think they did cover that. And I don't necessarily think that despite my disagreements with the approach of this administration to NATO, I don't think the result of having our other NATO allies increase their military spending or increase their attention to these issues and the way in which we are um, making sure we're prepared. Like, I'm not opposed to that, but the biggest strength of an alliance is not military spending, it's the relationship so if even at the end you're increasing military spending, but you're damaging the relationship, I'm not really sure how you come out ahead. And it is unfolding so publicly 
that it's difficult to imagine how you can walk back from all of this. You know, it, it's going to take probably two more administrations to clean up these mm. alliances, I think. Okay, so we want to shift gears, mainly because I just really need to get this off my chest. Beth, are you following the white people with cell phone situation? The let's call on black children delivering newspapers or mowing lawns or selling water or swimming or barbecuing or sitting in there. This is in Canada, actually. A gentleman was sitting in the car reading C.S. Lewis. Got the cops called on him. I don't know. I don't know how many, many stories of these I can take. I am screaming at my computer constantly. I know that's probably not your reaction. Here's what I'm struggling with. I don't know what to do with these stories other than scream at the computer. I haven't tweeted about any of them because I feel so voyeuristic watching this stuff. And then I feel like I can't not watch it because I need to sit with the ugliness of what's going on in our country. So I feel really conflicted. I sort of hate how some outlets have kind of packaged them to to ramp up the drama because they're dramatic enough. I, I don't know. I sit in my house as a white lady, right? And I think, what is my work to do with this information? Because it just tears me up. My husband and I watched together the the woman who just was wearing a flag of Puerto Rico on her shirt. Oh, my God. And we watched it and we just, we just sat and looked at each other like, what what are we to do with this now that we know that there is... A man who thinks that she shouldn't even be allowed to wear that shirt in America. So clearly he doesn't understand anything about our country. And there's a police officer who's watching all this go down like, eh, I don't know. you know. And the whole thing just so infuriates and depresses me. And then I kind of have this sense that there's no way for me to react that isn't any way productive. If you're frustrated, if you're white... If you consider yourself an ally, I think there is something to be gained by sharing these stories and saying this is unacceptable because there is a segment of the population who do not see these stories. And so they don't understand the harassment that black people go under on a daily basis. So, like, I have a lot of people in my life who I'll bring up and they'll be like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like... Or they'll say, well, if, you know, there was suspicious activity. And I'm like, right, but it was a little boy mowing lawns. Oh, I didn't hear that one. You know, so I think that there are just so many at this point you can say, like, do you see that this is a problem? And I do think it's important, particularly in like with your when you're only hanging out with other white people, white people who might not see these stories or understand or feel inclined to follow these kinds of incidences to bring it up and raise awareness about it. I'm about to just like create a flow chart about when is appropriate to call the freaking police. Like, is someone being murdered or robbed? Would you use the word suspicious if it was a white person? Is it going to stand up on Twitter? Then maybe check yourself. Like people like I just it's so frustrating to me to like see not just on a moral ethical level but just like on a common sense level like you're seeing all these people do this and lose their jobs like just get totally shamed on twitter i'm not even saying that's the right approach but like 
can't you just read the room and like stop calling the freaking police? Like just on a basic common sense level. I'm so frustrated by how this no one is just. But again, what I'm realizing is I'm frustrated because I'm following all these. But there is definitely a huge part of the population the white population, who do not know about these stories. Like a couple that have bubbled up, like I think the Starbucks one reached a national level of attention, but people can justify that one in their head on a lot of different levels. When there's just so many, like I kind of like that they package them because then you can't pick them off one by one and say, well, oh, they thought this, or oh, they thought this. You're like, no, because look, it's like kids and it's happening all the freaking time. So I don't know. That's where I'm at. One thing that I do want to do, and I've been working on this, working on it and working on it in myself, I just want to have language ready for myself when I see something like this happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were at a Reds game a couple of weeks ago. It was just me and my husband. It was a late game because so we didn't have our daughters with us. And a couple rows behind us was the kind of guy who who believes maybe if he just comments on everything in the game loudly enough, ESPN will call and request his services. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's got some expertise he needs to share. And so he's doing that. And at one point, in, and I'm already just finished with him, right? At one point in the game, they were playing the Cubs. The Cubs manager comes out onto the field to talk to the umpire in one of those kind of hyped up baseball nonsense drama moments, right? He doesn't like the call. So they're having a chat and the Cubs manager puts his arm around the umpire in the course of that chat, like around his waist, basically. And I kind of cringed because for me that brought up like every time I have been subjected to an aggressive act of affection um, in a business context by some older man who's going to just explain how things are to me right now. But gentleman behind me who can't keep his mouth shut makes a comment about how we just got through the pride parade. We don't need any of that here. (gasps) And it made my stomach turn. And I just, I just froze. I, and I'm still like, it makes me sick to even think about it again because I didn't say anything. Mm. And I just couldn't. And the rest of the game, I sat there thinking like, what should I have said? Like, what was the right thing to do in this moment? What were the words that I needed to be able to, in the, in a way that I would feel good about, say to him, that is wrong. Please don't say that. What about your, I don't see the truth in that? <laughs> no. I love I, I don't see the truth in that. And I always have that ready, like, certain situations, but just there in the baseball stadium, I just froze. And I'm so sick about the fact that I didn't say anything. And then the same guy a couple of innings later makes a comment about a woman walking by and whether her chest is real. Oh and my I'm God. just, and I looked at Chad and I was like, I'm going to have to leave soon. Like I can't, I can't with this guy, but I still didn't find it in me to like turn around and say something. And I hate that about myself. And so I know from, from this experience and how much guilt I feel about it, that I cannot be in a situation like what's been happening at these pools and not say Mm -hmm. something. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really trying to practice. Here's what I'll say if something like this happens. Here's what I'll do. Yep. I think that that is huge because I had a conversation with two friends of mine who were at a dinner and and a woman, a mother of small children, was saying some really ugly, nasty things about immigrants. 
And they were both like, why would I, you know, it just would make it tense. I'm not going to change her mind. And I said, it is so important. Yes, you're right. You're right. You weren't going to change that guy's mind, and they're not going to change her mind. But the reason it's so important that we all, like you said, practice, and and I think in our increasingly emotionally driven um, environment, to say something is because that person might be the only person talking, but they are not the only person listening. Yeah. And if they don't hear someone say, that's not okay, then they assume everyone feels the same way, or at least most people do. And that to me is like, What's so, you know, a lot of this is just my personality, but like, I can't, I can't. And I, that's probably why I don't get invited to a lot of dinner parties because (laughs) I'm going to be the one, I think it's probably why I wear my book club out because I'm going to be the one that's like, no, I'm sorry. Everyone's uncomfortable here, but sometimes there are more things that are important than all of us going along with our comfortable lives and not rocking the boat. Sometimes the boat needs to be rocked. And for this white people with cell phone situation, I'm ready to rock the boat. Like, this is getting ridiculous. Yeah, your point is such a good one. As I've thought about what I wish I had said, it it really wasn't even to that guy, right? I just kind of wish I had stood up and said something like, I just want to say I thought the Pride events in Cincinnati were beautiful. And I'm really Mm -hmm. happy to be here watching baseball with all of you. And I'm sorry that yep. you had to hear that. I mean, I, I just – it not not about him, right? I'm not yep. going to try to convert someone. But I, I wish that I had used my voice to say, please don't assume that all of us sitting here feel that way. The mom and me wanted to look at him and say, like, are you nine? Like, is Word. that really your reaction to what's going on with you? But that's not the point. <laughs> but listen, you know what? Sometimes pulling out the mom voice and or teacher voice – teachers have really good voices like this – just the like – check yourself voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, check yourself. There's that, when I was talking about the Rachel Held Evans book, she, and she's talking about the prophets, which I mentioned on Tuesday, she talks about Bree Newsom, the woman who climbed the pole in South Carolina and took the, the Confederate flag down after the shooting in Charleston. And she was like, she just, she climbed the pole. It makes me cry. She looked at the face of the beast and said, not today, not today. You know, like, we're no one's saying we're going to fix it. No one's we're going to, sl- you know, slay the dragon forever. But we can sure as heck use our voices. And there have been a lot of people in these situations who have just said, you know what, not today. Not, I can't stop it forever. But I can sure as hell slow it down in my space right now. And, you know, we have an amazing community. So if y'all have some good scripts or things you've used in your past, I keep thinking about that woman on the bus when the ice came on and yes. she was like, uh-uh. Not today. I want to be her because she knew what she was talking about. She knew what she was talking about. And she appropriately pulled it out in a way that was helpful. And that's who I want to be. I don't want to be just contributing to a bunch of drama. But I also don't ever want to feel again the way I feel about not having said anything at that baseball game. You know, I think it's the the French, maybe. Don't quote me on that. But there is a language that has a word for that feeling. A feeling when you leave and you're like, oh, I wish I know I know what I want to say now. And I wish I'd said it like we do. We need a word for that. And it, It's worse than that, because that was my responsibility. I mm. I did have a responsibility to say something and I didn't. And I'm just I'm sorry um, to myself and to everyone else that I didn't. But listen, that's honestly, I think that is 
just as important, like recognizing that and s- instead of being defensive of yourself, like that's your gift. You're like so good at being like, I screwed that up. That was bad. I mean, that's just something a lot of people can't do. And I think we all have to do both things. We have to, because in order to empower ourselves to speak up, we have to acknowledge that we've disappointed ourselves when we haven't. You have to do both things and they're both hard. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on to this interview with Emily Jane Fox, which I'm really excited about. That's up next. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E. 
quince.com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. I am here with Emily Fox, author of Born Trump, which you can't miss in a bookstore because it is in a perfectly appropriate gold cover (laughs) and is a really fast and interesting portrait of the Trump family. Emily, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. The cover is very subtle, I know. (laughs) Well, when you're dealing with such subtle people. It's it's fitting, I would say. I think that's right. Tell me about the process of creating this book, I was in awe by the level of detail from the beginning of the Trump children's lives um, all the way throughout. I mean, you have really gotten an intimate portrait. Well, I tried very hard. And, you know, the process of writing a book in general, this is my first book, is um, grueling, I would say. But it was particularly hard because there was so much information about these children's lives since the very start. So there was just an overwhelming amount of information. Um, and so many people who wanted to talk, there was no shortage of people who had things to say, who had interacted with them over the years. So for the book, I interviewed about 150 people. And these were people from as close as you could possibly get to the family to someone who played a tennis match against Ivanka in 11th grade at boarding school. So you know, it, it ranged from people who know them incredibly well to people who did business deals with them, people who worked with them on the campaign transition. And I also went through every single press clipping that mentioned them since they were born. So I tried to get, uh, oftentimes, you know, going through the press clippings was a way for me to get people who I would necessarily not know about uh, people who were mentioned in stories quoted from when the kids were younger or uh, major events that they went to. I was then able to use it as a jumping off point to say, oh, I should be looking at that event and figuring out who was that event. Can I find photographs from that event to see who was there? And can I talk to those people? And so it's kind of like a puzzle figuring out the, the moments that you want to create in the book and then figuring out who you can then speak to from there and convincing them to talk to you and um, finding out as much about the kids as possible. I wanted to just give the, the, these are people who are so messaged for their entire lives who created such an aura and image around them and are so good at that. And I knew there had to be more. So the more detail I could find out about them, the better and, and more clear the picture of who they truly are deep down under that facade would be. Well, and you write in this really remarkably transparent way. Like I appreciated how the book read like a great story until the moments when the stories diverged and you just said, here are the differing accounts of what happened. I'm thinking specifically of the confrontation between uh, Marla Maples and Ivana Trump. And and you're just honest about people have different memories of that. I'm wondering how often that came up for you and also why it is you think people were so eager to talk. So on the first point, you get differing perspectives First of all, when things happen a long time ago, right? People who remember things, their memories shift and change over time. And with that instance in particular, there are 
two very clear sides. Ivana had one way of seeing it and Marla had another way of seeing it. And those two sides will never be reconciled. And the people around them who were at the the restaurant in Aspen where the confrontation went down at the time had a sort of an in the middle view, but their point was different than Marla or Ivana's point. And so that really didn't come up very often. I would say what came up far more often was I heard the same accounts of other stories over and over and over again. For instance, there's one story about Ivanka being at a party at a faculty member's house in boarding school and the party getting busted. And that the account of that story, every single person who I talked to from boarding school independently brought that up. And it was a, a very similar story. Now there are some other times, um, particularly during the campaign and transition where you would hear the same story, but details differed slightly. And in that instance, I tended to either go with the, the way the story was, was recollected the most. Um, or you can, you can also sense when people, especially in the political side have a motive. Uh, so I kind of just tried to strip the motive away and stick to what seemed like the most reasonable representation of what actually happened. I found there were some people who were not eager to talk. Uh, there are some people who felt going back into their childhoods, especially their high school lives or middle school lives was invasive and they had the right to a private life. Most people, I think, have a lot to say about these people for a couple of reasons. There are some people who feel very strongly about the political climate and so they wanted to talk. That to me felt like a danger zone. And I actually tried to not include some of those anecdotes that I got from people who I felt had a clear political agenda, just felt like maybe I wasn't getting the most accurate representation or the truest stories. There were also people who just uh, have been sitting on stories about people that they knew who are in the public eye that they feel are more revealing to who they truly are and so felt some sort of duty about it. And you're also talking about a group of people who are just gossipy in their nature. People who are around famous people or are incredibly wealthy or privileged. Uh, and you're talking about people who are in the news all the time. It's just, these are just gossipy sorts of people. And there's nothing more fun for me than to just gossip with a very wide array of, of people. And I found the same to be very much true of Jared Kushner. Well, tell me about how different it was to capture Jared Kushner versus the Trump children? The only difference I would say in in reporting on Jared is I found it harder to find people who had positive things to say about Jared. And I don't know if that's because people have stronger feelings about what he's doing now or if he's just someone who rubbed people the wrong way for a long time. I could almost sense that in your writing. There were moments when I thought it feels like she's holding back maybe a little bit on how extreme the feelings were about him, <laughs> because because you, I think you wanted to be fair, right? Like, that's the sense I got through the whole book. You You wanted to be fair, which meant not overly sympathetic or searing about these people. Sure. I tried very hard. And, and my pitch in talking to every single person for the book started the exact same way. My pitch was... The book has no bias. I have no bias. 
There's no agenda here. All I'm trying to do is get the clearest picture of who these people are, because these are some of the most powerful people in the country, in the world. And it is important to understand who they really are, to understand what they're doing now and where they may go in the future. And I truly believe that. And that's what I tried to stick to the most in the book. Now, there was a, an easy way for me to do this where I slammed them, right? Mm-hmm. Or there was an easy way for me to do this where I, you know, and, and I'm sure they would have preferred this and, and um, been very happy for me to do this and who knows what. Uh, for, for me to be, you know, more sycophantic uh, and, and praiseworthy of them. But I think what ended up coming out of this was some, somewhere in the middle where you are able to express kind of the, the more ridiculous sides of them, the more absurd sides of them, the more offensive sides of them, while also realizing that these kids went through a d- difficult time and there are some sympathetic moments in their lives. And there are some moments where you're like, wow, these people have terrible parents. And so they may be doing bad things or, or have behaved poorly, but you can kind of understand why they, they did. Um, and with Jared, I wanted to afford him that same courtesy and I went into it with the same way. I would just say when I was talking to sources for other children in the book, I would say, you know, about half of my sources were positive, about half of them were negative. With Jared, I would say like 80% of them were negative and 20% of them were positive. Now, it's possible that the closest people to Jared Kushner don't really want to talk. or, But I, but I talked to people who were as, as close as you could possibly be, and they essentially all had the same thing to say. Like, Jared's very nice. And so there's only so many times you can repeat like that one very bland, meaningless statement in a book. <laughs> yeah, my reaction, and I would love to hear if if this is a fair characterization from your perspective. Mm-hmm. My reaction to reading the book was was neither, oh, they're not as bad as I thought, or they're worse than I thought. It was, what an incredibly broken family. And the the brokenness of this existence is is playing out in America right now, right? I, I, that That's how I felt reading about their childhood. You felt that way makes me feel like it's exactly what I wanted people to feel. And it makes me so happy that that's what came across. These, r- writing this book helped me understand so much of what is going on in the White House right now. And so much what is going on in this administration, because you understand what a selfish, narcissistic person the president is and how that impacts anyone who is close to him, chiefly his children, of course. But but you're able to understand, you know, why Ivanka stays silent on, on immigration last week from this book. But you're also able to understand why other people in the administration do what they do, because you understand how he treats people and how when they're treated badly by the president, they still stick around because even though he is narcissistic and selfish, there's some sort of intoxicating magnetism around him at the same time. And so this whole process has helped me make sense of of what's going on. And at the same time, you know, you're able to go through a story that's kind of, you know, West Wing meets Gossip Girl. And it's just a very complicated, twisted family that you're reading about 
so complicated and twisted that it seems like fiction, but actually it's very much real and it's playing out at the highest level of our government right now. You helped me reconcile some seemingly irreconcilable things about them. The obsession with power and popularity I think the way that you describe Ivanka and Jared's fascination with the Kennedys is so um, well done and helpful. And so on the one hand, you think, why then did this family who knows how to do popular not go in the White House doing what would make them immensely popular among the very people whose approval they've been chasing forever? And I think the book helped me understand both that they desperately, desperately want that and also have given up on it. And maybe that's why that that Trump base that will allow him to shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue won't waver. Like it's it's the kind of juxtaposition of this need to get approval. You know what? Screw you, elites. I cannot get your approval. So I'm going to the people who will love me no matter what. And I think I really hit that realization when you reminded us that they were considering a discount hotel chain post-election. That's the moment when I thought, oh, I get it now. Like they've they've run to this kind of 30-ish percent of America because they've finally gotten from it what they've wanted from everyone else. You hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. And I think part of the reason why they went down there, even though their lives would be so much better if they had just stayed in New York, they would have, Shovanka would have been able to still be an advocate. She still would have been able to go on foreign trips with her father if she really wanted to, even though that seems super weird. Um, Part of it is she can't leave her father and she's worried about her father leaving her. And you, you know, from reading it that when her father left the, triplex though he only went a couple floors down when he was um getting divorced from Ivana and and starting things in earnest with Marla was uh, Ivanka was petrified that her father would replace her that her last name would no longer be Trump that uh you know she would go and visit him more often in his office or call him more often from school and so I think that part of it is some of that psychology playing out like if she was not physically with him then perhaps he wouldn't think of her as, you know, as useful or as necessary as she once was. And then I think there's also part of it where it was like, we're never going to get this opportunity again to be this close to the center of power. Let's take advantage of it. Let's figure out how this is going to benefit us in some way. And look, if everything turns out that the president did nothing wrong and there is no collusion and he wins a second term in office and the economy is good, then there is a world in which that could happen. That that if if they play the long game, the long game turns out fine for the president, then who knows what could happen for Ivanka and Jared. But that is a huge gamble. And all of those things have to be true in order for that gamble to pay off. And I don't think anyone feels like all of those things could be true at the present moment. So it's it's a, a realization that for someone who is so clear-headed and ambitious and has been for her entire life, when it comes to her father, all of that rationality goes out of the window. Well, and you can understand why when you when you come to see that 
his proclivity for just writing his own story despite the facts is not new. That this has been his entire existence. Uh, No, one of my favorite stories in the book is that um, someone who was very close to him for many years remembers that in the 1990s, he was obsessed with the idea of dating Princess Diana. He thought they would make the best couple. And he kept telling people, like, we, we should date. We would be such a great couple. And within a few days, it morphed into, oh, Princess Diana's dying to date me. And it wasn't that he was, like, lying in the strictest sense of the word. It was that he truly believed at that point. He had convinced himself that it, it was no longer, I want to date her, but she's dying to date me. And he just believed it. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs, or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And 
Even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. And you can just draw a straight line from that to his inauguration crowd, right? To, I mean, to everything that's happening, it just all makes so much sense when you when you come to understand that this is who he has always been. Totally. That this is why these little tiny stories about Princess Diana in in their you know in all their smallness don't seem all that great, but when you understand the psychology behind it and you see it playing out today over and over again. It's like, of course that man's going to do that. He's been doing that for the last 30 years. Who do you think is the most interesting character in this family? Oh, that's hard. Um, You know, I have a natural interest in Ivanka and I I covered her the most for Vanity Fair. I covered her very closely and continue to. um, But I think she gets the most attention. So uh, I'm going to leave her out of this. I'm fascinated by Melania. I don't get into her as much in the book because it was about the children, but I'm I'm fascinated about what's going on in the White House right now. And I think there's so much to uncover. But in terms of the kids, um, I think that Don Jr., there's something about him that is a little tragic for as, as brash and aggressive and obnoxious as he can be. There's certainly a tragic side to him. And what I think is playing out right now is fascinating. You know, his whole life, I think, was was really determined by the divorce as well. He was so angry with his father. He didn't talk to him for years. He didn't initially want to go work for the Trump organization. And, and I think a lot of the attack dog uh, nature that we see with him attacking people on Twitter now is, is based on some of that residual anger. But what is fascinating now is as angry and hurt and wounded as he was by the divorce, he's repeating exactly what his father did in his own family right now. And it is just fascinating to see how strong a family bind is. How, how we, some, some things are just genetic or it's nature and nurture. And I just, I just think that is, it's such a tragic thing almost when you know how, how much something affected you growing up and, and you are going to repeat that for your five children. I just think it's an, an amazing moment that we're watching right now. I'm thrilled with your answer for two reasons. One, when I was reading this book, I thought I want to read her book about Melania next, because I think Melania is one of the most interesting characters on the national stage in a long time. I just, I don't understand her at all. And I really would like to. And then I also thought Don Jr. really came across as this strange and tragic picture in your book. And I remember watching him when Sarah and I went to the RNC, watching his speech. There was so much more kind of rawness in it than anything Ivanka ever does. Yeah. And it was much more impressive than anything that had happened at the convention to that point, for sure. Totally. Yeah, that's a low bar. Yeah, it was a low bar. But I mean, he really did carry it off well. And I thought, what is his end game? Like, what is he trying to accomplish here? And then reading how 
kind of for his entire life, he's been trying to be the more independent Trump mm -hmm. uh, while still being a favored Trump. It's a it's an interesting way to grow up. He, he's definitely a very complicated figure. And I think his, in terms of his end game, he is like the most political of all of them. Long before his, his well, not long, his, you know, the president had flirted with politics for a long time with running or at least. Uh, but Don Jr. has a set of political beliefs that I think are, are now stronger than anyone else's in the family. And um, he was a warrior on the campaign trail because he could relate to people in the country in places where his father couldn't relate to people. He could go hunting with people. He talked on stage at hunting conventions. Uh, he spent a lot of time practicing these political speeches. And so I think because he actually believes in stuff, he comes across as more authentic than perhaps some of the rest of his family members. And there have been talks for years about him running for governor of New York. And uh, I don't, I would say as much as people speculate about whether Ivanka would ever run for office, I would say Don Jr. is the more likely sibling to ever run for office. While I'm asking you for predictions, so we were just talking about this very strong intergenerational dynamic in this family. If you had to predict what a, a similar book about the, the, the Trump children coming up now looks like, what, what do you imagine of that? The, the third generation, mm -hmm. the Jared and Ivanka's kids, Don Jr.'s oh. kids. Oh my God. I can't even, I'm like dying for that reality show. I hope that one of them has a reality show and uh, we get to see all of that because I think it would be fascinating. I think that Jared and Ivanka raised their children very differently than the way Ivanka was raised. I think they're raised more like how Jared was raised. Everything is very family oriented. Um, you know, Ivanka and Jared have two nannies, so it's it's in that way it's similar to the way that Ivanka grew up. But uh, they're they're fairly present parents, and uh, Jared's parents are very involved with him. They spend a lot of time with them, and so I think that their lives are uh, slightly more normal than Ivanka and her siblings' lives were. Don Jr.'s kids, I would die to write a book on them or like watch an endless loop of footage of them big brother style. I feel like it's a little bit of the wild west in that house. Um, I don't think that they have help the way that his sister does. There are five of them. They're all under 12 or 13 years old. Um, they all like go ATV and hunting and fishing and golfing too. And it just seems like a very, untraditional household, especially uh, it seems untraditional for, for kids who grew up in Manhattan. And now that you have Don Jr. dating Kimberly Guilfoyle, I just, I'm just very curious to see how this is all going to play out. Like, are they going to have a new stepmom? Are they going to have six new stepmoms? So that would be a book that I would die to read at the very least. Well, my last question for you, Emily, I'm hoping can be helpful to everyone. We get messages all the time in the vein of how do I stay grounded in in the Trump administration era? And it seems to me that you were able to dive into their lives in a very deep way and keep your feet on the ground and keep a, an open perspective. So what tips do you have for us about staying grounded in being in the midst of the Trump reality show? Well, I feel like I'm going to need to 
listen to my own advice here. I think everyone needs to take a step back sometimes. It's so easy to get caught up in the outrage cycle because there's so much to be outraged about. But I think democracy is resilient. Our country is strong. And I tend to remind myself when I get the most upset or in a real tizzy that things will go back to normal. I I genuinely believe that. And, And if we can just take a minute when we're at our most grazed to take a breath and just say, this, this too shall pass. Um, that helps. I also think, um, I mean, I run a lot, I run every day and that helps me a lot. I think if I didn't do that and take time to process things, uh, in a way, whether that's you know going to yoga or running or just sitting without your phone or cable news blaring for an hour every day, just taking a little bit of a break from it and, and breathing is my biggest tip. Find some, some way to get away from it and, and to release and, and realize this is a terrible moment, um, but it, it will be over. And there are things that you can do. You are not helpless in this situation. You have the right to vote. You have the right to be an informed citizen. You have the right to write things about this, um, to, to call your Congress members, to, to do something, to, to go to marches, to, to donate money to causes you think will help. And, and so if you think you're not helpless, this is going to be over. And there are ways that I can get my mind off of this. Those are the three things that I also, I, I often tell myself. Well, it's a great book. It's kind of this strange combination of psychological analysis meets beach read about a crazy family meets uh, important window into the highest levels of our politics right now. So thank you so much for writing it and for spending time discussing it with me. Thank you so much. It means everything to me. Thank you so much to Emily Jane Fox for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I did find her book very illuminating about the state of our world. We'll be back with you on Tuesday to talk about the world before 9-11. We're going to first focus on the Middle East and then in a separate conversation talk with you more about the U.S. intelligence agencies before 9-11. So we look forward to talking with you then. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Fancy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, George Niedermeyer, James Randall, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To support Pantsu Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash Politics. You can connect with us on our website, www.pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Sign up for our weekly emails and follow us on Instagram.